0: Well, good morning, my name is Billy Gifford, I'm the executive pastor on staff, and uh, Tyler said I go fast, but I think he was actually referring to like my speed when I'm actually running. See, if you've ever seen me play soccer, Chris Surface knows, that's what he was really talking about. But uh, So this morning, like Christian said, we're diving into the Bible, and this is kind of like the intro message, I guess, and really the goal of this sermon is to take the question, is the Bible the Word of God? And, and move that is to, the Bible is the word of God, and how does that apply to our lives? There was a French philosopher in the like, late 17th century, his name was Voltaire, and he wrote numerous uh, writings against Christianity and against the Bible. And he predicted before his death that he said, a hundred years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. How's his prediction? Famous last words. Uh, Within 50 years after his death, ironically, in a very ironic way, the uh, Evangelical Society of Geneva used his house as a storehouse for Bibles and gospel tracts, and they used his very own printing press to, to write against Christianity to print Bibles and send them all over the world. So, famous last words, God vindicated his own word. But the truth is, many of us have grown up in households where we were led to believe unquestionably that the Bible is the Word of God, period. Because dad said so, or mom said so, or grandma said so, or Mr. Pastor said so. This is the Word of God, unquestionably. And it's important that we lay a foundation for why we believe that. Because it could come a day where some smart, progressive, modern guy may come to you and and give you 12 reasons why you shouldn't believe the Bible, which is happening in our day. And then what? And if we don't have a foundation, it's, it, we could be building on dirt and then it could collapse one day. And so we need to build a foundation. See, God doesn't actually ask us to believe things blindly. Although many Christians give that impression that faith just means you just believe it because. That's not, the, that's not what God intends. He actually intends that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened that we might know. He wants us to know. And so we're gonna dive into that <clears throat> this morning. Last week, if you were here Ashley kind of ended her message and shared a little bit of an allusion to to baseball and how they experienced the rules being changed in the middle of the game, right, and then how the strike zone went from, you know, where it should be to, like, basically anywhere. Um, And citing the example and saying, basically, we can't change fundamental truth just because it's hard for someone. And so ultimately, it was a question of where is the ultimate authority to say, what are the rules of the game? Like, what authority do we look to? In that, in that moment, was it the umpire or was it actually the rules of baseball? Like, who actually gets to say what's a strike and what's not a strike? Speaking of baseball, actually, this is interesting. Did you know that baseball was alluded to in the Bible? It is. In Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning. Okay, that's the only laugh you're going to get this morning, so I hope it carries you all the way through. It should. Now, Now you're just going to cry, so I had to get that out first. Jesus warned us in Matthew 24 that in the last days, there will be widespread deception all throughout the earth and even in the church. In Matthew 24, he says, see to it that no one misleads you for many false prophets will arise and mislead many, even the elect, he says. And <clears throat> since the church is called to be the pillar in support of truth, First Timothy 3.15, let me just name a few of those deceptions that are swirling around in the world and even seeping into the church. And ultimately, it comes down to that question of what is the authority? Who gets to say what's true and what's not true? So the first one, you may have heard some of these. You probably have heard all of them. But the first one is no one can know absolute truth, that all truth is relative, hashtag my truth, that what's true for you can be true for you, and what's true for me can be true for me, and that's totally fine. Uh, In a shocking study done by a Christian cultural research center based in Arizona, they found that among professing born-again believers, 48% of them said they did not believe that there was an absolute truth or that God was the source of that truth. This is from born-again Christians, people who say they're born-again. So meaning that they believe what they believe, but they're like, I don't know if i want to push that on anyone else because I don't know if it's absolute truth. Another thought is humans aren't so bad. Humans are actually really good by nature. This is a tricky one, but if you believe this, it kind of sets off, it it, it sets you on the wrong foot. Because the truth is, we're not actually good by nature. That at left alone, we actually produce bad fruit sometimes. But another one, a thought circulating the world today is love is love. I'm sure we've all heard this. The, but meaning, you can love whoever you want, love whoever you want, regardless of your gender. And in fact, gender is just a choice. It's just a social construct that bears no meaning in reality. And in other words, I, who I think I am, and how I express who I think I am is up to me, and it's fine, don't call that sin. Another one, Jesus is a way to God or to heaven, but not the way to God or to heaven. In other words, all roads lead to heaven. The belief that we as Christians shouldn't be so narrow-minded to think that God wouldn't accept and grant eternal life to just everyone, or, or you know, rather than just the Christians. Um, It's the thought that Jesus is a wonderful role model and a wonderful teacher, uh, but nothing more. And if you choose to pursue God through Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha or money or just not at all, that's all the same. Uh, I recently heard a prayer, you probably heard it too, uh, by a so-called minister, It, it was a benediction at January's presidential inauguration, and he ended this prayer saying, in the strong name of our collective faith, amen. In other words, whatever your faith is, as long as you have something, come on, you're in, let's go, amen. All roads lead to heaven. Okay, another one, sin isn't that serious. Sin is not a big deal. And this is the root of many issues of the church today, because if we actually believe that sin is not that big of a deal, then follow. there's a progression with that, then humans actually are good by nature. Then we're actually pretty good. Therefore, if we're actually pretty good, what's the need to humble ourselves before a holy God and repent of our sins? And besides, God is good and loving, right? So why wouldn't he accept everyone if everyone's actually pretty good? And, and it just leads down a wrong road. Lastly, there's a belief that if sin isn't so serious, then neither are the consequences of sin. In other words, hell is not serious. At worst, hell is this temporary timeout Before, you're like annihilated forever, and then you're just gone. And at best, hell doesn't even exist, at best. And so these thoughts are swirling around the world today and and seeping into the church. And there's a thread woven through all of this that I hope we can see this morning, and it began in the very beginning of the Bible, in the very beginning of time, in the Garden of Eden. And it was very simple, with, with the devil tempting Adam and Eve, saying, Has God really said... As God really said in Genesis 3, he says, did, did he really say that if you eat of the tr- fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die? Surely you won't die. Well, what did he say? Genesis 2, 17, we, can, we just actually look at it. It says this, God says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So the devil literally just flipped it. And Adam and Eve have had a choice, and it was this, this choice of who's my authority. One authority is saying, if you eat of it, you'll die. The other one just says, "If you di- you're not gonna die. Who would they submit to was the question. And he, so he called into question what God had said, and then he lied about the consequences of ignoring his word. And all these thoughts I just shared that are swirling around the church and the world today have this one thing in common, and that's the voice of the serpent saying, has God really said? Has God really said that, Jesus is the only way to the Father? Surely, surely he's loving enough to accept everyone, regardless of his son. Has God really said that there is none righteous, not even one, and that your righteous deeds are like filthy rags? Surely, that may apply to that guy, but you're actually pretty good. You have good intentions. You're you're pretty good. Or has God really said that he created male and he created female? Surely that creation's up to you. Or has God said the soul that sins shall die. Did you really say that? And if you walk according to the flesh, you'll die. Surely you will not die. (laughs) So we need to answer this question. Is the Bible the word of God? Because when the devil asks us these questions, when he says, has God really said, my hope is that we can walk away just with a very simple, yes. Yes, he did. And you move on. And so I want to, I'm kind of breaking it down into a few parts. The first part of, uh, is really simply, and this is maybe more educational, but it's the production of the Bible. Like, how is it here? Why do we believe it's what it is? And so let's start with the Old Testament. <clears throat> the Old Testament was written uh, within a thousand year period between 1400 and 400 BC. The Bible states that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which are known, of the, known as the Law of Moses or the Torah or the Pentateuch, just meaning five uh, it says in Exodus 24, 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord in Deuteronomy 31, 9. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests and a few other places. Maybe I do go fast. I can kind of feel it. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the Old Tes- Testament was written by various authors, including Samuel, David, Solomon, Ezra, and all of the prophets. And according to Jewish tradition, it was Ezra in history, the Ezra first gathered and collected the 39 books that we have in our Old Testament uh, and that we have in our Bibles. And the Jews before Jesus' time, during Jesus' time, and after Jesus' time, all referred to these 39 books in the Old Testament as Scripture. And Scripture simply means a fixed group of divinely inspired writings that are fully recognized as authoritative. And so Scripture just throw in there is it's kind of broken down into three or four parts, the Old Testament, and that's the law, the historical parts, the prophets, which some people clump together, and then the writings, which is like the Psalms and the, the wisdom literature. Okay, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a 400-year gap from Malachi to Matthew. And in that 400-year gap, God did nothing and God said nothing, which is why there's nothing in our Bibles during that time. There were some Jewish writings circulating in that time. There were like 14 books specifically called the Apocrypha, that, uh, <clears throat> but they're not part of the Bible because of the reason that God was not saying anything or acting. And in fact, the Apocrypha was only added way later in the 15, 1500s by the Roman Catholic Church, by some bishops who decided they wanted this to carry the same authority as the other 66 books of the Bible. And in reality, at the Council of Trent, this happened. And, and the reality was it was because of the Reformation And in response to Martin Luther, they wanted to bolster their argument against him. Therefore, it's not in our Bible, and Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and then there's the gap, and then Matthew. So that's a brief history of the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament, and they were written within 70 years of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, written by six of his apostles and two close associates of the apostles churches all around the world began individually copying and circulating and collecting these letters. And <clears throat> over about 300 year period it became clear that certain books were being recognized by most of the churches as scripture, as divinely inspired. There were other early letters and teachings that were copied and circulated around the church at that time, but it was clear that over time there was only 27 of them, the ones we have in our New Testament that Uh, were universally recognized by the church as Scripture. And the decision to recognize these 27 books, uh, it was not a decision made by one man or one council, but rather by hundreds of men and churches all around the world who uh, came to recognize that these are the books inspired by God. So simply put, the, the New Testament emerged through the circulation of, of letters among the New, New Testament church as divine and inspired by God. Another way to put it is that the church didn't determine what should be in the Bible. The church discovered what should be in the Bible by discovering which books did he inspire. So they, it was as if God was bringing forth his word. And so we know that we have in our current Bibles exactly what the original, I mean, there's a question out there that's like, well, how can you trust what's in the Bible. Like, is it accurate? It's been hundreds of years since you know, the original was written. How can we know that it's trustworthy? Is it reliable? And so that, there's a very simple scholarly rebuttal to that <clears throat> known as textual criticism, or it's, it's called the bibliographical test. Sorry if this is a little nerdy, but <laughs> I'll be brief with the nerdy. Um, textual criticism is simply a method used by scholars to determine the meaning of the original text from the manuscripts, which is copies. So there's an original, they have bits and pieces, and they have copies. And the, simply put, the more copies and manuscripts they have of the original, the more reliable, the more accurate, the more uh, trustworthy it is. So with that in mind, some examples of widely accepted, if not universally accepted, ancient texts are works. So I'm just gonna list a few things. Works from Aristotle, for example. The way they, are, they have found 50 copies of a certain work spanning from a 1,400-year gap from the original to the copies. So the original, they dated, and then they got 50 copies, about 1,400 years in between. Works from Plato, there's 210 copies of a certain work with a 1,200-year gap. From, from Caesar, 251 copies, 1,000-year gap. And this next one blows them out of the water. Homer, Iliad, Homer's Iliad, they like that for some reason. 1,800 copies of that one with a 500-year gap. And then, of course, the one that blows them all out of the water is the Greek New Testament with 5,800 copies within a less than 100 year gap. The funny thing is, if you hid the names, if you just put your hand over the names and ask the secular world, hey, which one of these is most trustworthy? They would all point to that last one. Hey, 5,800 copies, scholarly, secular, atheist, the world alike. That one is the most reliable. Then you remove it. and It's like the New Testament. They're like, oh, wait a minute. Actually, you can't be so sure. Surely that comma wasn't that. that that's messed up. But the truth is, uh, people don't believe the Bible because they don't want to believe the Bible. Because if they believe the Bible, that means there is a God and now they have to give account for their lives. So that's a little bit of uh, history to to backbeat the Bible. Okay, that was an introduction, sorry. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, introduction to how it kind of came about, I'll call it the production of the Bible and now let's talk about the proof of its actual divine inspiration. We can, we may be able to prove that, okay, what was written was written thousands of years ago, great, and it's all accurate, but how do we know that's still inspired by God? How do we know that this library, that's what it is, 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 is breathed on by the Lord? And so, uh, <clears throat> funny story, my daughter, who's about to be three, her name's Adeline. If ever I am making something just for me and my wife, like food or a snack she will try to insert herself into it to get some of it. So it goes like this. I'll be making something, and she'll go, Daddy, what you you doing? I'm like, I'm making food for Mommy and Daddy. She'll go, oh, for Mommy, Daddy, and Adeline? And I'm like, no, for Mommy and Daddy. And she'll repeat it. She'll go, oh, for Mommy, Daddy, Adeline, and Liam? I'm like, no, for for Mommy and Daddy. And so in order to avoid moments like that, uh, I do what all parents probably do. I guess I'm discovering what parents do, which is hide. You know, like, you cover your mouth, you're chewing, I'm like, what are you doing, nothing. Or like, turn the corner so you can have an M&M. So, you know, you don't want to press, tempt your child to think. Anyways, so I started doing that and I'll put food in my mouth or I'll like get something and she'll literally go, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing. And she, she does this, of her own initiative, she goes, say, ah. And I'm like, she hasn't learned the hide it under your tongue trick. And so I'm like, ah, you know, there's nothing there. And if I don't prove it enough, she literally goes, say louder, say, ah. And so I'm like, ah. But she wanted proof that what I was saying was legit. I mean, I'm proud of her for that because it'll save her troubles down the road. She's not gonna be so easily fooled. But, uh, so what I'm gonna do right now, we're just gonna say ah to the Bible and look at some, some proofs of the divine inspiration of, of, of the book. All right, the first proof is its survival. The Bible has stood throughout these centuries triumphant over every single attack against it. And in fact, without a doubt, it has been the most fiercely attacked book in all of human history for the longest period of time. Nothing comes close. It has survived physical attacks from being banned to being burned. It has survived intellectual attacks with like scorn and derision. It's about to survive, if it hasn't yet, emotional attacks. People saying it's harmful to people's psyche and... You know, it causes trauma and it's triggering. It has survived criticism from its friends and and hostility from its enemies. And yet, it survives. And it flourishes, in fact. Haters come and go, but the Bible is here. (laughs) And it goes from strength to strength. There's not been another book that's been so loved, yet so hated, so treasured and valued by men and women all over the world and every single culture than this book right here. And still the world's bestseller, by the way. <clears throat> All right, second proof is prophecy. We, we accept the Bible as God's infallible word because of the detailed amount of prophecy contained in it that have been fulfilled. Lots of prophecy, that is. The best test of prophecy is its fulfillment. If you say something's gonna happen, it doesn't happen, and you're wrong. But by that test, the Bible stands alone. About one-third of the Bible is prophecy. Prophecies concerning the birth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus were made in the Old Testament centuries before they came to pass. And they came to pass to the letter. Prophecies concerning many of the leading nations in the Old Testament times, specifically that of Israel, have come to pass even in our day. Even in our day, the, uh, the Jews have returned back to their homeland in Israel and taken possession of Jerusalem, which was predicted 2,500 years ago in the Bible. Okay, third one, further proof of the Bible's divine inspiration is its remarkable unity. <clears throat> this one this one is powerful. It is a 66-book library, okay, written by written over 1600-year period. I want you to think about this. In three different languages by 40 plus different authors with varying standards of education, with a widest range of social and cultural backgrounds from kings To shepherds, to military leaders, to prophets, to Pharisees, to fishermen, to farmers. And yet through all of that, there's not a single fundamental contradiction. There was no human editor or organizing committee saying, cut that out, don't do that, whatever. Uh, Yet it has total unity. From Genesis to Revelation, this book has one main theme, and that is our salvation in Jesus Christ. One theme all the poetry, all the history, all the letters, all the prose, all the proverbs, they all unify to bring forth this one thing, which proves there was an author to this Bible. It was a living author. It was the Holy Spirit who put it all together. All right, fourth reason, proof, is the inexhaustibility of it. Throughout the centuries, there have been many brilliant, sharp-minded men and women who have preached from this book for thousands of years. Uh, And yet, its depths have not been fathomed. It is like a bottomless pit of like revelation. It's like bottomless pancakes at IHOP. I don't know, that's not a thing. It was a thing at one point, it's never ending. So think about it, for thousands of years, people have been preaching from this book. And on top of that, thousands upon thousands of books have been written about this book to explain this book. Yet we can come here on a Sunday morning, sit down and hear a fresh word from God still. How's that possible? Not a new doctrine, but a fresh word. Augustine said this of the Bible. He said, the Bible was composed in such a way that as beginners mature, its meaning grows with them. And Charles Spurgeon said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years." All right, fifth proof is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The testimony of Jesus. In the gospels, we find him constantly quoting the Old Testament scriptures as his authority. At the outset of his ministry, in Luke chapter 4, and Matthew chapter 4, we see some of the first words ever recorded of Jesus were, it is written, a straight assertion to the Hebrew scriptures as authority. And at the very end of his ministry, in Luke 24, we find him opening the scriptures on the road to Emmaus, their two disciples, and just explaining the scriptures to them, and then later to the 11 in the upper room. So again and again, throughout the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on the earth, we see him allude to the Old Testament over and over again as his authority. He made at least 57 quotations from and allusions to the Old Testament. So what is abundantly clear is that the Lord entertained no doubt at all that the scriptures were authoritative and inspired by God. And it was the only written authority that he accepted on earth. When answering the Pharisees and Sadducees of his day, he always quoted scripture. It is written, or have you not read? That was the ground of his appeal. And in fact, this does include the New Testament because he promised the writers of the New Testament a special gift, the Holy Spirit who would bring into remembrance all that he said and that he's going to tell you more. But I can't tell you right now because you can't handle it. John 14 and 16, he says this. In 2 Peter 3, Peter refers to Paul's letters as scripture. And even Paul himself writes that he, he's writing the express command of the Lord saying, this is not words taught by human wisdom, but wisdom from the spirit of God. Lastly, the last proof I'll give you, which I would probably consider the greatest proof of the, Bible, the Bible's divine inspiration would be its power. The power it has to transform a life because when read in humility before God, God speaks to us through it. He speaks to us and lives are changed. Sinners are turned into saints from reading this book. Saints from this book. Addicts are set free from reading this book. The wicked become righteous. I mean, true transformation happens. Family, broken relationships are restored. This is like what the world is longing for, and they're trying to manufacture a billion different ways they can't do it. But someone picks up this book and reads it, their lives are changed. There's no other book that has that kind of lasting power in someone's life. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, said, The Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. For our transformation. <clears throat> so there's the proof I would give for the divine inspiration of the Bible. But I will say this uh, understanding the history of the scriptures, fully believing that it wasn't manipulated, fully believing that it wasn't, uh, there's not errors, fully believing that it was actually inspired by God is actually not enough fully to help you on your Christian journey. It's not enough. Uh, I don't think many in this room really struggle with the idea of, is this the Word of God? I think we've most, if I'm just guessing, the pulse that I would guess is like, most people believe this is the Word of God. So that's not really the issue. The issue is, how do I get that power that you just talked about into my life? I believe this is the Word of God, but how does that power transform my life right now? And so that's what I want to talk about for these last few minutes. And I would say the first way, there's two points I want to mention of how we get power from the Word of God. And the first is that the word of God feeds us. The word of God strengthens us. It feeds us. See, when a baby is born, the first thing it does is it cries out for milk. And if, any, if there's a born again Christian, the first thing they're going to do is cry out for the food of the word of God to nourish them and strengthen them. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Peter says this. You have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable. But imperishable that is through the living and enduring word of God. You see, many people, um, <clears throat> maybe along in their life, get to a point where they really feel like they've just messed up their lives. When they just wish, I wish I could just start over, I wish there was a reset button. It's like this, this debt has been racked up, and I'm like, I will never pay it off and with their sins and the morality and the choices or whatever. And When God offers, hey, you can be born again if you surrender your life to Christ, that is exactly what he's offering you. He's saying, reset. You're born again, innocent like a baby, as if there's no history, no past to speak of, to haunt you, to condemn you, to put you down. No shame, no guilt, that's gone. But it's for those who come and say, Lord, I want to be born again of this word that's planted like a seed in my heart. And he can wipe out the debt. And so this new birth takes place through a seed, the word of God. Just like the physical birth, we need the seed of our father to, to, for life to be produced. In the spiritual birth, we need the seed of the word of God for, for, life, for new life to be produced, for us to be born again. And so when we hear the word of God preached, this is why preaching is such a big deal. The Bible, Paul says, preaching is foolishness to, the, to most people, but it's important. Because when the word of God goes forth, you partner with faith and You believe and you agree and you respond to that word saying, okay, yes, I am a sinner. Okay, yes, Jesus did die on the cross for my sins. Yes, there is the promise. So we see it's not just hearing it, it's holding it fast through perseverance. It's through responding to it in obedience. Just a few verses later in Luke chapter eight, verse 21, uh, it says that his mother and brothers came to him and the crowd told Jesus and Jesus said, he responded to the crowd saying, my mother and my brother those are the ones who do the, hear the word of God and do it. And then again, in Luke, Luke 11, verse 28, someone starts to praise him and say, blessed is the womb that bore you. And he says, ah. on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. My point is this. For us to be fed and strengthened by the word of God, we have to be doers of the word. James 1, He says this, but prove yourselves Doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So if we're constantly just hearing the word of God, we can get into this idea and deceive ourselves to think I'm actually doing it. I am, a, I am following Jesus because I'm hearing it. And the Bible warns us, James warns us right here. It's like, no, no, no. You might be deceiving yourself. Are you doing it? Are you living out this word of God? <clears throat> so we cannot be nourished by the word of God unless we respond to it in obedience. Okay, the last thing I'll mention of how the, the, the Bible gives us power is that the Word of God not only feeds us, but it fights for us. It fights for us. See, when we become Christians, we enter into a battle, and it's the, it's the fiercest battle of our lifetime, and sadly, many Christians are defeated by, you name it, shame, guilt, depression, anxiety, condemnation, whatever it is, but We're not meant to be defeated. He's called us to live an overcoming life. So how do we overcome in this battle? That's the question. There's a very well-known passage in Ephesians that speaks about the armor of God, and I'll read it to you real quick. Ephesians chapter six. It says this, Stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. And as many people have pointed out before, that's our only offensive weapon in the Christian armory. So what makes this such a weapon like how do we use? How do we wield the sword? How do we use this sword? We're tempted every day to stray from that narrow path that Jesus called to walk on. Every day we're tempted, and those temptations come through thoughts. They come through feelings, probably feelings more now nowadays. Uh, but for example, suppose the devil comes to you and says, "Does God really love you?" I mean, look at so and so. I mean, look on the Instagram. You saw how that that person's doing. Like God's taking care of them, but you, you're struggling. And financially too. And whatever. He'll start naming all your problems. And then he'll say, I don't even know if anyone loves you. Or, so, or let's say it's lust. What's one glance? He'll just say to you, hey, what's one glance? You're not like doing any harm to anyone. Just, it's not a big deal. Or with anger, you know, and, and, and offense, he'll say, I mean, what that person did was wrong. And God is just, right? You get that from God. That's, that's beautiful. You can, it's understandable then if you get a little offended. And in fact, you have a little bit of a right to be angry, and you should be entitled to a little bit of hatred towards that person. Things, I mean, the devil will tempt us every day with all these thoughts and emotions. And so the best way <clears throat> to learn how to fend off of these, all these thoughts and feelings is to look at Jesus and say, how did Jesus do it? He's our forerunner, he's our example, what do we do? Because see, what the devil is trying to do is very simple, this devil tactic 101. Here's the Bible, and here's everything else. Look at everything else. That's his tactic. He knows what the Bible says, but he says, look over there. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden, right? He said, well, has he really said that? What about this? He's changing the rules of the game. He's trying to be the umpire that doesn't have authority to actually do that. So there's always going to be two voices speaking authoritatively over you, and we have to choose who we're going to follow. And so let's look at Jesus. So in Matthew chapter four, and I'll wrap it up with this. The devil came to Jesus to tempt him, right? I won't go through it all, but we know the story. He says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. And Jesus responded, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Boom, that's a strike. Satan took a blow. So the devil wised up, right? He was like, okay, um, he's gonna use the Bible. Great. Cast yourself down from here. For it is written, Mr. Bible man, rabbi. <laughs> he will concern his angels. You won't strike your foot against the stone. He'll command his angels. And Jesus' response was the same. It's also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He didn't argue with the devil. He sh- the devil wants an argument. He wants you over here. D- Jesus is like, well, this is what it says. Yeah, oh, bro, it's good. Yeah. And lastly, he says, devil got, the devil says, all right, uh, I will give you all the kingdoms of this earth, right? You came to establish a kingdom on earth. I'll just give it to you. Shortcut. If you just bow down and worship me. And at this point, Jesus says, go, Satan. That's the, that's the command you give to a dog that's like jumping on you. It's get. <laughs> For it is written, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God only. <clears throat> so what, I just want to point out what Jesus did not do. He did not take his eyes off of this. He could have. That was literally the temptation. The temptation was, take your eyes off of this and look at your need. You need that. You need food. It's not wrong. So therefore, use that as your authority. I need this, so I'm going to cheat. I need that, so I'm going to lie. I need this, so I'm going to whatever it is. That was the temptation. And then the other one, it was the word of God versus need, the word of God versus human reasoning. And like, well, I can prove myself. I will defend myself. I will get a little angry. I will fight back in this way. That was, he, he could have proved himself easily. He's like, I'll prove you wrong. Again, the word of God versus, uh, what was the last one? It was reward. The reward of something. Well, ultimately, the means doesn't matter because the reward is all that matters. I want this, so again, maybe I'll just tell a little white lie. The reward is worth it. The struggle is this or that. At the end of the day, the devil just wants you to not believe in this not look at it, not read it. And if you do read it, not believe it. And if you do believe it, not obey it. And if you do obey it, well, then you beat them at that point. (laughs) So that's why it's it's important we know the word of God. Suppose you have a wealthy relative who passes away. And let's say they're very wealthy and they have a last will and testament. What are you gonna do? You're gonna read it. And you're going to say, what belongs to me now? Let's, this is past the morning stage. Unless He died of old age and now with the Lord, whatever. But now you have the, this last will and testament. And you're like, what will you do? You're not going to put it aside. You're not going to say, ah, it's okay. Because you might have a house. You might have whatever. And if you don't understand that legal document, I guarantee you, you'll hire a lawyer and say, hey, walk me through this. What belongs to me? I mean, we do that when it comes to money. But what about the spiritual riches in this thing? Like, do we go through this living document the same way? Do we say, I don't understand it, I'm going to understand it. I'm gonna read that book, I'm gonna to listen to this guy, whatever it is. I'm gonna do whatever it takes so I'm not cheated of what's rightfully mine. See, the devil's going to try to cheat you and say, Oh hey, that freedom from sin. No, 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 that doesn't belong to you. That's that's your sibling. You don't get that, you get this. He'll say, You don't get that joy. You actually depression? That's your portion. He's gonna to try to cheat you. We can't be fooled by the devil. 1 John 2:14. John says this, "I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you overcome the evil one. You overcome. We'll get the band to come on up. Y'all can stand. I'll wrap up with this. See, the Bible has survived throughout the ages, not because it's like a great story. I mean, it is a great story of heroism and sacrifice, but it survived through the ages because it reveals to us who the God of ages is. Therefore, he's not going to let this book pass away. Each of us, See, we hold something that people have very literally and too many times have literally died, given their lives away, so that people like us could obtain this, and read it, and translate it, and pass it along. There's a man by the name of William Tyndale. He was, like, he was the first to translate the Bible into English from the Greek and Hebrew. And his New Testament was also the first English translation to be used uh, printed using this movable typeset so we could produce mass amounts of Bibles back in his day. And for his efforts, he was sh- strangled and burned at the stake alive for translating the Bible so that we could read it. That's one of many stories. John Wycliffe is another one. Many of the church martyrs gave their lives so that we can know the truths in this book. But the last thing I want to say, so you don't mishear me, is that we do not worship this book. I don't kiss it. If I drop it, I don't like repent. I just pick it up. Uh, If it gets old and worn out, I'll get a new one. I'll put this one aside. I mean, the first Bible I ever had got so worn out, the covering came off, I duct taped it. It was duct tape, gray and red, just looked cool. I thought it looked cool, probably didn't. My point is we don't worship the Bible, but we do worship the God who's revealed in the Bible. John 5, 39, last, last verse. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The entire point of the Bible is that we would come to Jesus. It's like the song we just sang, Jesus at the center of all. It's all about you, Jesus. This Bible doesn't exist on its own. It points us and leads us to Jesus, who in John 6, Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. It's not just the book, but it's Christ revealed in the book that we might go to Christ and receive eternal life. Because Jesus is the word of God. He's the true word of God. He's the perfect communication from the Father. If you ever want to know what the Father's like, what he's saying, look at Jesus. How do we look at Jesus? Okay, look at the Bible. But we don't worship the Bible. So his words are truth. His words about himself and about us. His his words about our state and our need for salvation. His words about our future. It's all true. And this is the truth. When we when known in our hearts and held dearly, it sets us free. When we know these truths, we are set free. And we overcome the evil one. So I want us to respond in in one of two ways, and that is, if we can get a few prayer leaders to come up, some life group leaders, section leaders come up, just a handful of you guys. Uh, I want you to respond in one of two ways. So just come up for prayer, very simply. Say, Lord, I want to take your word seriously. I want to know the word. I want to figure out what's blocking me from, from really diving in. Can someone just pray for me? Or just any other prayer you might need. If you need healing, if you need just to talk to someone just for a minute just receive prayer, come up. But for everyone else who doesn't come up, I want you to just ask the Lord, what is that thing that's been a vice in my life, a thing that's been bothering me, a thing that I can't, maybe it's anxiety. I want you to physically write it down somewhere, on your phone, on your notebook, whatever. Just write it down, but then search the scriptures and find out what the Lord is saying. Because I'm telling you, he is saying something and it's right here. But maybe you've been trying all this other stuff. Say, Lord, okay, about anxiety, what, what have you said? Oh. You care for the sparrows even. Of course you'll care for me. You'll find it and it'll lead you to Jesus and you'll be set free. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you did not leave us to figure it out, but you gave us the word made flesh. And God, I ask that by this power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak a word, a living word to each and every one of us that we might respond in obedience, that we might be fed and nourished and strengthened by the word of God, and that we might learn how to hold this sword and to use it to fend off the the lies of the enemy. Help us to overcome, Lord. Help us to abide in your word and help your word to abide in us. Yes, Lord, we need you. And we, we just declare before you that you've given us your word as a guide, as a light and a lamp. And so we use it. And we use it, Lord. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.